This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Well, good morning to everybody. Certainly great to see everyone. Uh, If there are visitors in our midst, we certainly welcome you and we're involved in a study of Revelation, and uh, I moved so fast that about a year ago we started it, and we're in chapter 2. So uh, this morning we've reached the point of the Church of Pergamos, and uh, I think this is really the best way to study Revelation because I don't get to pick and choose what I uh, am studying. We just come to it as we come to it, and it's been my experience so far that it always feels relevant at the time that we come to it. So... Uh, I'm excited to continue the study this morning, and I'd like you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. As we look at Pergamos this morning, on this map here, you'll see that Pergamos was located about 40 miles northeast of Smyrna in Asia Minor, part of modern-day Turkey. It's where all seven churches of Revelation were located. The city was named for a lofty hill on which it was built. This was an immense rock rising about a thousand feet abruptly out of the broad, fertile valley. It was easily fortified and guarded. It had one way up. It was narrow and protected. The name Pergamos means tower, height, or elevation, and it carries with it the idea of exaltation. It was the exalted city. Because of its natural defenses, the city of Pergamos was considered an impenetrable stronghold, and the only way it was ever captured through the years was through stratagem. So we look at our text verse, verse 12, we see Jesus say, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. For about 250 years, Pergamos was the capital of the province. It was the seat of what was known as the Commune of Asia. And this is where the decrees of Caesar were executed. Now this gives force and meaning to Christ's introductory words, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. The broad double-bladed Roman sword was known as the cut and thrust sword. It was the emblem of the highest official authority. It carried with it the power of life and death. And the power was vested in the proconsuls of the province, and they lived at Pergamos. The governor of that place wielded the sword of Rome in this impregnable 
fortress-like city. It was really a picture of the authority and power of Rome. According to Pliny, Pergamus was also the seat of a Roman supreme court. Prisoners were brought here for trial from all parts of the province, and they were sentenced there by the power that administered life and death to all. Therefore, the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ is a symbol of his judicial authority. He, too, wields the power of life and death to all who hear his message. Hebrews 4, verse 12, For the, power, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, Pergamos was used to being the place where the men of power were. And Jesus says to these people who are used to this kind of authority in their midst, I am the authority over the authorities. I wield the sharp two-edged sword that is the word of God. I not only enforce the word of God, I am the word of God. And this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ, says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. Pergamus was very specifically the headquarters, let's say, for the pagan religion of the province. Church and state were united. The ruler of the state was also the head of the religion of the state. Pergamus was so full of heathen temples that it was often referred to as the city of temples or the temple keeper of pagan gods. You had Jupiter, who was said to have had his origin there. Temples were built and dedicated to Jupiter, Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, who was also known as Bacchus, the god of wine, Venus, the goddess of lust. All of these were worshipped with impure and licentious rites. And Pergamus was also the center of emperor worship. In AD 29, there was a great temple built here. It was erected to the worship of Augustus Caesar. And he said that we were to refer to, or they were to refer to him as Lord Caesar. Later, Domitian, another emperor, decreed that all people should announce him or should address him as our Lord and our God. There was one god there called Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine. It was very prominent. They set up shop in the temple of Zeus. Sometimes Zeus's temple was called the temple of Asclepius. And Asclepius was known as the god of per Pergamum the serpent god, or the god of healing, being referred to as the great physician and the savior, showing he was a counterfeit of Christ. There were many miracles that were supposed to have been performed in this temple. There was a living serpent that was kept there at all times, and it was worshipped. Serpent worship was so universal in Pergamos that many coins have been found with a picture of a serpent entwined around a pole. And you know, Satan as we know, is referred to in Scripture as that old serpent, and that symbolizes poison, sin, death, the poison of his words. The serpent here in Pergamos was made into a god representing healing and life in Satan's false religion. It was possibly a perversion of that brazen serpent that Moses raised on the pole, which the Hebrews called Nehushtan in the Bible. And ironically, this pagan emblem of healing is the same symbol used by the modern medical profession today. In Pergamos, paganism reigned supreme, and Satan's throne was there. The name Pergamos also indicates a union, as through marriage. The Greek word gamos means marriage. During the Pergamos period, the church was exalted to royal power. 
kingly authority through a union or marriage with the state when Roman emperors made Christianity the official religion. Satan had failed to crush the church through persecution, so what he did is he joined the church in order to ruin it from within by marrying the church to the pagan practices of Rome. Those were especially represented in Pergamos. Pagan beliefs and practices were brought in to the church over time, and Christianity was so changed that essentially it became baptized paganism. That was in the form of the Roman Catholic Church. At the time Revelation was written, you know, the seeds for this eventual Roman Catholic Church had been planted in Pergamos, but they had yet to take root. Hence, Jesus' warning to them. He says, And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr and was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Now, some believe that the name Antipas means against all. And it indicates that he stood against all compromise with the world. According to Christian tradition, John the Apostle ordained Antipas as the bishop of Pergamos during the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. The traditional accounts go on to say that Antipas was martyred during the reign of Nero or Domitian. And he was burned in a brazen, bull-shaped altar worshipped by the local population used for casting out demons. Verse 14 of our text goes on, and, he, and Jesus says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and to commit fornication. So understanding the message to Pergamos is going to require that we understand just who Balaam and Balak were and I want to examine their backgrounds for just a moment here. First of all, who was Balaam? Well, in Genesis 36, verses 1 through 8, it specifies that Edom, the nation of Edom, is also Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob, or Israel, from whence the children of Israel derive. Esau married daughters of Canaan. They served pagan and strange gods. And it's from those unions that the wicked nation of Edom came. And it's from these people that Balaam was descended. He was the son of Beor and the brother to Bela, king of Edom. First Chronicles 1.43, Now these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel, Bela, son of Beor, and the name of his city was Dinhaba. So Balaam was descended from the nation of Edom. He was the brother of the king of Edom, and he was seen as a prophet or a soothsayer. Balak, on the other hand, was the king of Moab who were Lot's descendants. Lot, of course, is the nephew of Abraham. Lot's perhaps most famous for choosing wicked Sodom in which to live, work, and raise his family. Even though he was a righteous man, he was willing to overlook wickedness because of the riches and convenience that Sodom had to offer him. He wanted the city life, even if it meant he was in the midst of wicked men. And this attitude of Tolerance and compromise was going to cost him his wife. It was going to negatively impact his children. And that would all come to fruition when God destroyed Sodom. You know, he had raised daughters, Lot had, that married men who thought so little of their responsibility as their protectors that when Lot 
told them, hey, we need to flee. The city's about to be destroyed. They scoffed at him, ignored him, and then they let their wives run off with their father-in-law without him. And then in uh, just a little bit later, Lot's wife, she also desired that city life more than God's will. We know that she looked back, and as a result, she died after escaping the city. She couldn't bear to leave it behind. In Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38, we see Lot's daughters then make him, their father, so drunk that they could get him with child or get themselves with child from him. From this corrupt union sprung two wicked nations, Ammon and Moab. And Moab is the nation over which King Balak ruled. So we have a king, Balak, and we have the brother of a king, Balaam. They represent two nations who were both descended from relatives of Abraham. Two nations that ended up opposing God and their own kin. Now let's look a little bit further at how this plays out because the choices that we make have consequences. Since both of these men descended from the same line as the children of Israel, it is reasonable to assume that both of them knew who Abraham was. They knew of God's covenant with him. And by extension, they knew that the Israelites were the chosen people of God. They knew also that to get to Israel, you had to go through the God of their own forebears. When asked to bring a curse on Israel by Balak, Balaam said he had to consult with the Lord in Numbers 22, verse 8. And when God tells him not to curse them, Balaam realizes he's got no choice but to submit in Numbers 22, 13. So when King Balak hears this, he sends even greater princes with promises of wealth and prestige should Balaam disobey God and curse the Israelites anyway. Balak says in Numbers 22:16, let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. The implication, of course, is don't even let God stop you, Balaam. Verse 17, Balak speaking, for I will promote thee unto very great honor, and I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. That sounds an awful lot like Satan talking, doesn't it? So what does Balaam do? Numbers 22, verse 18, And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. That sounds like a good response, doesn't it? Even in the face of all those tempting promises of wealth, honor, and favors of the king, Balaam stands strong and he obeys God. Except Balaam didn't stop there. Numbers 22, verse 19 Balaam says, Now therefore, I pray you, tear ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. I thought the Lord had been pretty clear, myself. And now we begin to see the true character of Balaam. Balaam had said all that needed to be said by the end of verse 18. But the tug of King Balak's temptations were still there in his mind. He was turning them over and over. This is why we're told to flee from temptation. Because if you sit and ruminate in it, it's going to take its effect on you. So Balaam begins to look for ways to get around God's clear command. He looks for a way to play both sides, and in so doing, Balaam would find himself in the precarious position of trying to serve both God and mammon, or the personification of money. These men are not operating in ignorance, they are operating in belligerence. 
So we have Balak the tempter and Balaam the compromiser, trying to manipulate the things of God for his own self-interest. You can see here the truth of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So we know a little bit about the background and character of these men now. Let's look at the accusation against them. Revelation 2.14 says that Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Now, don't miss an interesting turn here. In the story of Balaam, it can be easy to miss who the true villain is. Remember, Pergamos was the city, as a city, was the capital of pagan worship, sin, and wicked temptation. And these would be the Balaks of Pergamos. But Jesus doesn't say you have Balaks among you. Jesus said you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. If Balak represents Satan and his worldly kingdom, which has no power or authority over the church and the children of God, then Balaam represents the compromising person in the church, the one who is tolerant of willful sin. Balaam is tolerant of wickedness only because he sees an opportunity to serve himself in some way. Balaam represents the agent of Satan who is embedded in the church trying to unite worldly ways with the ways of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, what we have here in Balaam is a false prophet. The truth of Balaam is that while he was considered a prophet and a man of God in Moab, he was really just a spiritual mercenary seeking personal gain. Joshua 13, verse 22 says it outright. Balaam, also the son of Beor, the soothsayer. What's a soothsayer? Well, it's one who practices sorcery to commune with spirits for favor, information, and power. Balaam was skilled at this, and that's why Balak focuses in on him. A false teacher also has an appearance of a man of God. He may be eloquent, charismatic, powerful. He may even seem to be blessed of God because of the works that he does. And Satan will use such an one to seduce God's people into destroying themselves, if he can. So the question then becomes, well, why did, why did God speak to Balaam at all? The simple answer is that God isn't likely to have made a habit of talking to Balaam. In fact, this account may be the only time he ever did. The reason why God answered Balaam is because God was fiercely protective of his people. We know that because he says so in Micah 6, verse 5. O oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal? That you may know the righteousness of the Lord. In other words, that you may know that I will not abandon you. I will not leave you to the wolves. I will protect you. That is why God spoke to Balaam, because he was a righteous defender, not because Balaam was a prophet of God. To God, Balaam was just the son of Beor, a soothsayer, nothing more. Now, one thing I find interesting is that Balaam didn't appear to be surprised that God spoke to him, which suggests that he was accustomed to actual contact with spirit beings that he connected to. You know, we tend to think that these folks just make stuff up, and a lot of them do. But there are some of them who do more than that. 
you know, Balaam, he connected with these spirits and whatnot, and then he traded that connection for influence, wealth, and other things, renown. The message here is that false prophets are not just dangerous because they're liars. They're also dangerous because they have a very real form of wicked power. They aren't harmless. But when we just think that there's no such thing as somebody who can actually commune with a, a, a devil, a spirit, as we commune with God, when we do that, and we just laugh them off and allow them to remain in our midst, it's a very dangerous thing as we're about to see. Soothsayers, they often took the place for God for many men and particularly amongst men who wish to control an outcome by exerting influence and control over a God through a medium. This is what King Saul did in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 through 8. And the interesting thing there is that King Saul, he had previously put out all the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. You see, he knew they weren't of God. He knew they shouldn't be in his kingdom. But then Samuel died, and King Saul's shaky relationship with God took its toll. You see, while Samuel lived, King Saul felt that he had a true man of God who could act as his intermediary and get him information that he didn't feel that he could get for himself. But with Samuel dead, Saul felt inadequate to seek God for himself, let's say. So he turned to this witch, and she had a reputation just like Balaam did for getting results. Saul had a specific word of God that he wanted to hear. But God wouldn't talk to him, we're told. And I just want to tell you, there is always a Balaam waiting to step into God's place if you let them. So with Saul, you see that a lack of faith and a lack of personal connection with God makes one vulnerable to our own Balaks and Balaams. They have the power to deceive even those who should know better. In the case of Pergamos, the Christians seemed to want to think the best of the Balaams in their midst, rather than hold them strictly accountable to the word of God. But the moral of the story of Balaam is that he knew what he was doing. He was conniving, he was cunning, and he was a false prophet. He didn't deserve the benefit of the doubt or tolerance. He took God speaking to him in stride. He was used to getting responses, and he understood the will of God, even though he worked to undermine it. You know, this might explain why Balaam didn't even seem surprised when his donkey spoke to him. This was a man who was used to hearing things. He wasn't just making it up. Christ is warning Pergamus that tolerating a Balaam in your midst only serves to increase their influence and their destructive power. And Balaam, for his part, was so influential that in 1967 in the nation of Jordan, an 8th century B.C. inscription of prophecies of Balaam was discovered, and its location was in the ancient kingdom of Moab, where history shows that Balaam was spoken of for centuries after he died. This man had some influence. The lesson is that the wickedness one tolerates today grows in influence until it becomes what subjugates a person tomorrow. Apparently, the Balaams of Pergamos were becoming so dangerously influential that Jesus reminds them, hey, I am more influential and powerful. I am in control. The case of Balaam's talking donkey is one such scenario where that's 
that reminder is given. But there's another one in uh, Numbers 24, verses 1 through 13. I want you to picture here Balaam and Balak, and they're standing out and they're looking upon hundreds of thousands of Israelites. And this is the third time that Balak has asked Balaam to curse the Israelites. And they're building all these altars and they're burning fires and they're creating sacrifices and um, there's a lot of expectation there. And then when Balaam looks out, his eyes are open, he goes into a trance and his eyes stay open and all of a sudden he's like, oh Israel, you're going to be rich, you're going to have food aplenty, you're always going to have water. You're going to crush your nations. You're going to be the most powerful nation that's ever existed. And here's Balak on the side watching him with incredulity and outrage. He's like, I said bless him or curse him. Don't bless him. Don't do either. Just shut your mouth. I mean, the whole thing's just comical to me because God's toying with him. And God has a tendency to do that. He had done something comical earlier with the story of Balaam and his talking donkey. Jesus is so much more influential, so much more powerful, so much more in control that he can just toy with these people. But I'll tell you something. Hell hath no fury like a Balaam scorned. After this episode, we're told that Balaam departed and returned to his place. But the story of Balaam isn't yet concluded, and we still haven't identified exactly what it is Balaam taught Balak that was a stumbling block for Israel. So Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, we see where the Israelites finally messed up. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people, the Israelites, did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the ang anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. As punishment for this sin, God brought a plague upon the people that brought them death. But here's the kicker. It isn't by chance that these Moabite women tempted the children of Israel. No. It turns out that Balaam didn't just go home. He didn't stop trying to bring curses upon the Israelites. Numbers 31.16 says, Behold these, these Moabite women, cursed the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. It was Balaam behind the whole thing. This was after Balak got frustrated, smacked his hands together and said, Get out of here and shut up. You're useless to me. But Balaam... You would think he'd have no further motivation, right? No. No, what Balaam taught Balak is that you can't take God's people from out of his hand. So you have to influence the people to leave God. And you do that by sprinkling little bits of leaven, bits of compromise with sin here and there until you corrupt the whole body. Paul warns that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump in Galatians 5 verse 9. Well, see, at this point in Revelation, Pergamos is not yet corrupted, but they were allowing that leaven to be sprinkled in their midst by someone they apparently trusted as a man of God who may have even been used by God in the past but was not actually of God, at least not any longer. The children of Israel, in the story of Balaam and Balak, they were in the land of Moab. That was Balak's kingdom, remember that. At the time that Balaam tried to curse them, they were in Balak's land. Now, Jesus 
correlate, correlates Pergamos with Moab, Balak with Satan, the church of Pergamos with the children of Israel before they fell to that temptation of idolatry, fornication, and false teaching by the manipulative Balaams in their midst. He says to them, you're holding fast my name. You've not denied the faith, even though you currently dwell in Satan's kingdom, but you have allowed tares, weeds, to spring up amongst you, and they threaten to choke everything that you're doing out. Do you see the comparison between the two here? Jesus is giving a stark warning to an otherwise faithful church. He's saying, watch out. You've got a Balaam among you because Satan, your Balak, is seeking your destruction. And if you don't cast the Balaam out from among you, he will eventually succeed in bringing a plague into your midst. Moving on to verse 15 of our text. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now you may remember from our study on the church of Ephesus that the Nicolaitans were also mentioned there, and I said we'd get to that later. Jesus was proud of the church at Ephesus for their hatred of the Nicolaitans, which he also hated. Some people don't like the word hatred. They think there's no place for it. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are to have a healthy hatred for sin. And the Nicolaitans hated something sinful that, that the Nicolaitans were doing, that the church at Ephesus did. And Jesus says, hey, you do good in that. I hate it too. And now here they are mentioned again with the church of Pergamos. Well, the Nicolaitans, we don't have a whole lot of information about them. And what we do have is extra biblical information, church records and things. But I'm going to share with you some of what is there. The name Nicolaitans, it's a compound Greek word. It comes from the name Nicholas, which literally means one who conquers and subdues the people. The implied meaning is that the Nicolaitans were conquering and subduing right-thinking Christians with their ideology. Irenaeus and Hippolytus were two leaders in the early church. They recorded many events that happened in early church history. They said that the Nicolaitans were the spiritual descendants of Nicholas of Antioch, who had been ordained as a deacon in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. There we read that Nicholas was a proselyte of Antioch. Now, a proselyte was someone who was not born a Jew, but they converted from paganism to Judaism. Nicholas then experienced a second conversion, this time turning from Judaism to Christianity. Now, here are some conclusions that one commentator drew from this information about Nicholas of Antioch, about his personality. We know that he came from paganism, which is unlike the other six deacons who came from a pure Hebrew line. He apparently was not afraid of taking an opposing position, evidenced by his ability to change religions twice. He was a free thinker, very open to embracing new ideas and concepts. Judaism was a very different religion from paganism and the occult world in which he had been raised. He was obviously not afraid to entertain or embrace these new ways of thinking. Out with the old and in with the new, as the saying goes. And his ability to change religions more than once implies that he was not afraid to switch directions in midstream and go a totally different direction. This change of thinking and conviction is a good thing when guided by the Holy Spirit, but 
It can also indicate a lack of principle in others. According to the writings of the early church leaders, again, this is not inspired scripture, but is a matter of, of history. Nicholas apparently, it is said, taught a doctrine of compromise, implying that a total separation between Christianity and the practice of occult paganism was not essential. Early church records imply that Nicholas was tolerant of all three things, occultism, Judaism, and Christianity, because he'd had experience in all three. And he's accused of trying to mix those pagan, Jewish, and Christian beliefs into his own message because he had experience in all of it. I'm reminded of a billboard on a local church here. It says, tired of religion, try and experience. And I, I can't tell you how much I detest when people talk down about religion. I know the cliche nonsense about it's not about religion, it's about Christ. But James says, that there is a pure and undefiled religion. The fact is, religion is defined by the tenets that we follow in our faith. Religion is a good thing. But you have people that go out and they try to mix the Word of God and the parts that are unpalatable with the world. They try to mix it together and come up with something that's more inviting to more so they can grow their congregation and be popular, and make more money. Nicholas is said to have promoted some kind of utopian experience that blended paganism with Christianity. The idea is that, you know, we're going to have God adapt to us rather than us adapting to God. Now, some people don't even listen to this stuff. There's a lot of people that, don't, that say, well, we just don't know anything about the Nicolaitans. That's simply not true. Their issue is that they can't find it in the Bible. But you would be foolish to ignore history. History exists for a reason. It's not the inspired authoritative word of God, but it can be accurate. It can tell us a story. In both Ephesus and Pergamos, think about this. It was very hard for believers to live separately from all the activities of paganism because paganism is what they'd grown up in. It was the center of life in these cities. Slipping in and out of paganism would have been very easy for a young or weak believer to do since most of their family and friends would have still been pagans themselves. And a converted Gentile, well, they would have found it difficult to avoid pagan influence just like we do today. Young people in particular, particular. Do you find it hard to avoid ungodly music? Do you listen to the filth that's out there because you like the beats and the rhythms? Never mind what the words say. Do you find it difficult, anybody, to avoid fornication, pornography, worldly language and ideas? Do you find that it's easy to return to what are actually pagan practices like child sacrifice in the form of abortion, transgender ideologies, other occult practices? You ever been to a bookstore recently and looked at their young adult section and seen that it's nothing but occult nonsense and trash? I'm a vampire. I'm a werewolf. I'm a witch. I'm the most important person in the world saving everything. I'm God. That's all the rubbish that you find. That's the world in which we live. And because it's all that's out there, it can be very tempting to say, well, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. That's not what Jesus said. And history tells us that the Nicolaitans did just that. 
Remember what I said about the Catholic Church? For me, this is really all the proof that I need. We can speculate about whether or not this information about the Nicolaitans were true in terms of that they were descended from teachings of Nicholas, a deacon in the Bible. You can argue that you don't know that for sure, but what you cannot argue is that this doctrine of the Nicolaitans had a lasting impact, and from it, the thing that Jesus hated came a church that incorporated every pagan holiday and practice and superstition into Christianity, renamed it, repurposed it, and it was a way for the Roman Empire to allow its people to still do the things they were used to doing, but under the authority of the boss, the Caesar. It is significant, as I said, that the deeds and doctrines of the Nicolaitans, they're only mentioned in two places, Ephesus and Pergamos, which were both the biggest pagan centers on the planet at that time at least the known world. Now, it seems that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was that it's okay to have one foot in the world and one foot in the Bible. One doesn't need to be so strict about separating themselves from the world in order to be a Christian. That was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that Jesus hated. It led to a weak version of Christianity. That Christianity was without, without power. It was out convi without conviction. It would lead people to sell little pagan idols to people called indulgences, which if you paid the church, you could buy this little thing and you could have your sins forgiven. You could pray to another god, the Virgin Mary. You could take the bone of a dead saint and kiss it. There were people who actually went to dead bodies that weren't decomposing yet of saints. And they were told that if you lick this body that's not decaying, that um, you'll be healed or you'll have your prayer answered. That is pagan. That is not Christian. And that is the result of trying to live in both worlds, of taking part in what is antithetical to the message of the Bible. That kind of teaching results in nothing but defeat for the followers of Christ. I know I've said it, I'm repeating myself, but let me say it again. When a believer allows sin and compromise to be in their lives, it will drain away the power of Christ. It will drain away the influence of the Holy Spirit. You will be powerless. And the evil fruit of the Nicolaitan doctrine it encouraged worldly participation. Go along to get along. And it, because we're going to bring more people in this way, guys. Let's have a female pastor up here. Then we'll be on board with the feminist movement. Let's have a homosexual preacher up here. Then we don't have to worry about people decrying our church. Let's cooperate in COVID and not meet anymore as a church because the government told us to. Because then we won't get in trouble. These are all wrong things, and I think especially in the case of COVID, if it showed us nothing else, it's that we are all, every church, susceptible to these moments when we can misstep. That is the situation in which we find Pergamos, and that is the point at which Jesus said, hey, I love you, listen up. Here's what's going on and what it's going to lead to. They hadn't fallen yet. 
When we get to Thyatira, you're going to see a church that had already fallen. That's going to be the main difference between the two. But right now, Pergamos was a good church. But they had things going on in their midst that was about to change all that. And in this way, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans were literally conquering the people. So the Nicolaitans and Balaam, they were two iterations of the same attack on God's people. For those who still say, well, I don't know if what you're saying about the Nicolaitans is true, then ask yourself, well, why, why is it correlated with the story of Balaam and Balak? It's there because it's the same thing. They explain one another. And we know plenty about the story of Balaam and Balak. Someone says, well, I don't believe someone like Nicholas, recorded as a deacon in Scripture, could do something like this. And let me just be clear, I don't know what Nicholas did. I know what history records that he did, but I wasn't there, and it's not recorded in Scripture. But to the person who says it's impossible that he did that, I'm going to point you to Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. It says, this is Paul speaking, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Here Paul includes himself in a saying that there is always a possibility that the stalwart man of God today can become the Balaam of tomorrow. It can happen. It does. It was happening in Pergamos. No man is above sin. All of us can fall. Paul says that if that happens, if a once righteous man begins to take liberties with God's word, you let him be accursed. That means cast him out away from you and mark him as an outcast. And that's another thing people don't want to hear. Well, just come as you are. That is true when we're talking about inviting sinners to Christ. That is not true when we're talking about a teacher. That is not true when we're talking about a leader. That is not true when we're talking about a layperson who is willfully teaching false doctrine in the church. You don't abide them. If the elders were to correct them and go up to them, they said, hey, I don't care what you say, old man, I'm going to keep teaching this anyway because I've got some insight you don't. The Bible says you let them be accursed, you kick them out. We don't like to hear that. I can't understand that. If you've got a splinter in your finger, do you want to get rid of it or do you want to say, well, it's found itself a home? Who am I to say that the splinter can't stay? I mean, look, it's been there so long now that I've got a giant callus and bump that won't go away. Feels like a huge wart. I'm going to leave it there. Let, let the splinter be accursed. Let the false teacher be accursed. Get rid of them. That is why we're told, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. 1 John 4, verse 1. Satan disguises himself as a minister of light. We would do well to remember that. Just as the men of Israel compromised themselves with the world and false religions, now the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was encouraging compromise. I don't think the doctrine of the Nicolaitans ever left us. I think it's still here. If anything, it's making a comeback. Compromise with the world will result in weakness, powerlessness. It will corrupt Christianity. And this is the reason why Jesus hated it and the deeds of the Nicolaitans. As we conclude, Revelation 2.16, Jesus tells Pergamos to repent, or he was going to come fight against them, the compromisers, with the sword of his mouth. Remember the symbolism here. In Pergamos, the one with the sharp two-edged sword was the judge, jury, and executioner. To someone living in Pergamos, this mention of the two-edged sword would be taken as it was meant. The man with the sword was the man with the authority. 
The man with the sword is the one who had the, the power to impose a penalty for disobeying that authority. Christ will judge those who compromise the faith, whether it's a church or an individual Christian. And since the church, as it regards Pergamos, was allowing these people to exist as one of them, you know what that meant? Christ was saying, I'm coming to judge you all. He uses the word them, but people in this church were part of them. I would not want to be the church that Christ was coming to judge with the sharp, two-edged sword. This was an indictment that they didn't want. So test the spirits. Stand firm on the word of God. Hate sin. Hate sin. Hold the gospel uncorrupted just as it was received by you. If it didn't come out of here, you pay it no mind. doesn't matter who says otherwise. That's Christ's admonition to Pergamos. You know, as I study each of these seven churches, I, in earlier messages I told you about the different views of the seven churches. Some people believe there are ages and that we are in the Laodicean age because we're lukewarm, and I don't disagree with the fact that churches are largely lukewarm, but the truth that I see about all these churches is that each of them has a lesson to teach us. You may be able to say that there's both things occur occurring, that there are dispensations in each of these churches marking different periods of time and that they still apply to us. But the one thing I'm going to say is I don't know anything about what dispensation the Lord had on his mind. All I know is that he gave seven letters to seven churches, preserved it for all time, and said to us to read it and to keep it. So each of these churches has a message that applies to us today, and the message today is very relevant for us. What's influencing the direction and growth of our church? Is it the Bible or is it the world? Are we adapting to the clear message of God's word or are we seeking to manipulate it to suit the motives, narratives, and times of the world in which we live? In a future message, we'll examine verse 17 of our text more closely. My plan is to do a lesson. There's one of those statements at the end of every church message. And when we get through all seven churches, there will be a lesson specifically on that. But for our purposes today, let us just heed what that verse says. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Plural. At this time, uh, we have an invitation. If there is anyone here that... Um, has not accepted Christ as your Savior, has not confessed your sins, repented of them, publicly confessed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, your Savior, who died on the cross for your sins, died, was resurrected, submits to Him in baptism. If there's anyone there who hasn't done that, please do it today because He who has the sharp two-edged sword is watching, and he will come. And if there's anyone here who needs the prayers of the church for anything, uh, perhaps, you know, for me, I sit and I think in my life, in what ways am I uh, kind of straddling the fence? What things have I been partaking in, tolerating in my midst that I shouldn't have? And maybe you need the prayers of the church to help you break an addiction to sin. There is no shame 
in that. Our accuser has been cast out. Christ says that as long as we will come and beg forgiveness, that God is just and faithful to forgive us, don't let embarrassment or self-denial or anything else prevent you from plucking the splinter out that might be there. And as a church, let us do the same. Let us never worry about whether or not we'll grow or how this community might see us because of how firmly we stand on the Word of God. If we need prayers in those things, now is the time to come forward. If there be one of either case, we ask you to come forward to the front bench as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.